You're listening to The Story Connective. In this episode, you will hear people tell true stories about a significant moment in their lives. This time, our theme is food. And I pressed down with a fork and my entire pastry jumped off of my plate and onto the plate of the young man sitting directly opposite me. (laughs) A complete stranger. Welcome to The Story Connective. I'm Rebecca Rhapsody. The Story Connective shares inspiring stories of possibility, resilience, and cooperation. We got such great feedback from our last StoryBridge episode, episode 14, Connecting Stories of Change, that we decided to create another StoryBridge podcast. This time, we had folks talk about their experience around food, eating, and meals. StoryBridge is a community storytelling and performance method that's been used for decades all over the world to strengthen dozens of communities. The method guides a group of people to tell stories from their own individual lives and to deeply listen to other people's stories. With the help of Maui Academy of Performing Arts, we brought the StoryBridge method to a local acting class for senior citizens in our community. All the participants connected and laughed as they shared stories around this prompt. Talk about a meaningful moment in your life that occurred in a kitchen, dining room, or cafeteria. The stories were first told in pairs, then in groups of four, and ultimately, the participants selected some of these stories to be shared with the world via this podcast. The following four stories are true. Sometimes the story is told by the person who actually lived the story, And sometimes the story is told by a participant who is telling the story on another participant's behalf who wishes to remain anonymous. Each of these stories cast a light, illuminating our shared human experience for everyone to see. And we hope you enjoy them. Our first story is about a girl who finds her voice when she gets into an altercation around applesauce. I was in seventh grade, I convinced my mother to let me eat at the cafeteria. And when you're in junior high in Southern California, you can imagine what the cafeteria life is like. (laughs) Everybody has their tables, everybody has their friends. So I'm sitting at my table with my girlfriends, we get up to get our little trays, and we're going into the cafeteria. And one of my favorite things to eat at that cafeteria was applesauce. So I'm trotting through the cafeteria, I'm getting my macaroni and cheese, whatever it is. I'm going up to the applesauce lady, and there she's standing with her white uniform on, with her hairnut, with her crummy lipstick, plopping my applesauce on my tray. I go back to the table, sitting there with my girlfriends, and I take my first bite, and I've always eaten applesauce like I do ice cream, where I kind of it around in my mouth. And I'm doing that, and I feel something. There's a foreign object in my mouth. I take it out, and it's a fingernail. It's a fingernail clipping. And at that time in my life, I was a very shy little girl, but not at that moment. I put that fingernail down on my tray. I stood up. I went back to that lady with the poorly applied lipstick. And I said to her, there was a thumbnail in my applesauce and I demand a whole new lunch. 
And she said, oh, no, 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 no. You must have put that, up, that, that fingernail in your applesauce yourself. And I said, well, why on earth would I do that? When applesauce is my favorite thing, I demand a new lunch. So got my new lunch, went back to my girlfriend, sat down and finished my applesauce quite happily. Um, you would think that would be the end of my story with um, fingernails and foods, but it, it isn't. I um, ordered produce from a company that would deliver it to your house. And I had a big bag of beautiful green beans. And I'm going to make this fantastic salad. So I, you know, I washed my green beans, put them out on my tray, and there is a press-on fingernail <laughs> in the bag of green beans. And <laughs> that same brave child in me came out. I whipped out my iPhone. I snapped a picture of it and texted it to the people that own the green bean delivery company and um, told them of my horror of <laughs> the fingernail and my vegetables. And yeah, that's kind of the end of that story. But yeah, that's how I found my voice. Yeah, when I was in seventh grade. Our second story is from a Spanish island and the Spanish love their food. So in the middle 70s, when I was in my 20s, middle 20s, I lived on an island off the coast of Spain, one of the Balearic Islands, which is called Ibiza, Ibiza. And it has a wild and woolly reputation, but back then it was pretty chill. And I lived way, way, way in the country by a village called San Mateo. And I was four miles from San Mateo, so that was the last little bit of electricity. And then four miles from there, I lived in a house called the Canpartit. And it was an old 600-year-old finca with big, thick walls and vigas in the ceiling. And I rented it for $69 a month and it was eight rooms and I had about 30 fig trees and olive trees and almond trees and apricot trees and it was beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And there were, it was just incredible area with wild mushrooms that you could eat and wild asparagus. There was one room in the house I was not allowed to have. My landlord said, you cannot use this room and it had an exterior entranceway with a big lock. And he said, that's for the neighborhood. And I said, okay. And I had, it was a mystery to me. Why didn't I get to use this room? But I didn't really think a lot about it until one morning, about probably about 4.35 in the morning, still dark, I hear this boom, boom, boom. And the walls were shaking. And I thought, my God, what's happening? And I sat straight up out of bed and realized that the sound was coming from below, from that mysterious room. Quickly put some clothes on, ran outside, and there with the light of lanterns was all my neighborhood, these little Ibisenko people. The room was open and they had lights and lanterns and there was a donkey pulling a big stone that was the olive oil press that was 600 years old and they were pressing the olives for olive oil. It was incredible. They were already drinking wine. It was 
pre-dawn, pre and they, the wine bottles were out, and they were eating, they had loaves of fresh bread, and they were eating sausage. I was a vegetarian, but they kept saying, eat, eat, and drink, and so, you know, I partook of everything that they gave me because I wanted to be part of the festivities. It was incredible because the, the olives, these huge baskets of olives were being crushed, and they would pour water, and the olive oil would come to the top in this old press. And then by the end of the day, there were these big, big bottles of green olive oil, beautiful, glistening green olive oil. And it was a wonderful feeling to be with these people and very joyful experience. But there's a postscript. <laughs> so I had partaken of this uh, blood sausage. And unfortunately, about a month later, I started feeling a little... And I went to the doctor, and they said, oh, I don't know what's going on. And then I just didn't go away, and I got tested, and it turned out that I had, from the sausage, which turned out to be blood sausage, I got a tapeworm. <laughs> and the moral of the story is, when you break bread and eat food with other people, you never know what you're going to get. <laughs> and that's the story. <laughs> The next story reminds us how our friends can enrich our lives and how fun it can be to cook together. So about 26 years ago, when I was getting married to my Prince Charming, we were planning the wedding and we realized that we did not have the money to actually create food, take everybody out to dinner at some great hotel and buy them wine but we still wanted to have a really nice party so um, our friends some of them decided to help us out by donating the ingredients for our our big wedding feast we when we invited people we invited them to the wedding feast Sally and David's wedding feast so we met in the kitchen at Seabury and this was the first time that my mother had met David's mother uh, so it was, I was very tense about the whole thing. I thought it might not be quite uh, a harmonious relationship just because mother-in-law is kind of, you know, there's sort of mythology around that and they're very different personalities. And also I was just worried that it was going to not turn out well. I just thought the whole thing was going to be a bit of a mess. Uh, but we had Vinny Linares, who is um, this great chef. He was the guy who, who masterminded everything from the pasta salad to chopping the vegetables to making the asparagus. And um, he was drinking wine through the whole experience. And um, my mother and Vinny got into a very heated discussion about how to cook asparagus. And here's my mom, who at that point was about 65. And Vinny was 40, and she was saying, I've cooked 25 years longer than you. I know asparagus. <laughs> and, uh, but they were drinking wine together, and things were working. My mother-in-law, again, was not happy about the wine. She thought the, the wedding feast was going to be ruined. Um, but it, what happened as a result of that day and all of us together making this feast that was really going to be a celebration of our love, there was something kind of ancient and sacred about the experience. It felt like we were participating in something that had gone on for hundreds of years, this, this whole sort of merging of the families and the creation of the food. And then after we finished cooking and 
Vinny and my mom actually became like best friends. And we drove all the food down to this place in La Perouse, this house that we were using for our wedding. And it, it was just a lovely thing. It, was, it, was, it bonded the families and it felt so satisfying, much more satisfying than just uh, writing, handing some great hotel a visa card and, and you know, charging it. But then the little postscript of the end of it was that my husband and I, then we went to our honeymoon and when we got up to the desk, they said that your credit card will not handle the amount of money that we have to put on it for you to get this room. So we had to use two credit cards and it just sort of reaffirmed that yes, we made the right decision to have this feast that was provided by the, the entire community and our respective families. So it was kind of a beautiful bonding thing. Our final story today takes us to France and how a chance encounter can create a moment of a lifetime. In 1968, I was 20 years old and I was studying in Germany. And that summer, my next younger sister, Anne, came over and joined me. She was 17 and she had been saving her money that she earned working in the Kentucky Fried Chicken restaurant. So we got year rail passes, youth hostel cards, and we had backpacks with a tent and sleeping bags, and our first stop was Paris. We arrived in Paris and we saw all the usual sights, the Eiffel Tower, Notre Dame, we went to the Louvre and spent a nice morning there. And when we came out, we saw a beautiful sidewalk cafe, so incredibly French. So we didn't have much money, but we decided we could afford a coffee and a pastry. So we sat down at a long table, a shared table that was unusual for us. We were used to having your own separate little table, but. We sat down, we ordered our coffee and pastries. They arrived and I dug my fork into my pastry and it was, the crust was quite firm and I pressed down with a fork and my entire pastry jumped off of my plate and onto the plate of the young man sitting directly opposite me. <laughs> a complete stranger. So I said in my most educated high school French, oh, pardon. <laughs> and he said in his very proper high school English, I believe that I have something that is yours. <laughs> and that of course started a conversation. It turns out he was a journalist. He was a few years older than I, but probably no more than 22 or 23. And he said he had time, he didn't have to be back to work until five o'clock. And he asked us what we had seen and where we had been in Paris and we told him. And he said, I have something to show you that otherwise you might have missed. So we said, okay. And we went down into the metro and we 
came out of the metro at the Bastille uh, metro station, and we walked around the corner, and he took us to the Place des Vosges, which is about a block or two long. It's a little street that has not changed in the slightest since the 16th century. And it was like stepping back in time. It was absolutely magical. And had my pastry not chosen to jump onto his plate, we would have never had that wonderful experience in Paris. We thank all the participants of our story bridge. Many stories were shared that night and a lot of laughter, tears and hugs and authentic connection was shared as well. There's something really special about the creation of a shared experience. And many participants said that they loved hearing the stories and that they loved the feeling of connection that developed. And I loved it too. Our colleague and good friend, Ching Hong Wei, has done her PhD research on the effects of the StoryBridge method and has discovered that there are many proven effects of StoryBridge on the participants and the community at large. These effects include increased awareness, empathy, empowerment, and a deep sense of feeling seen and heard and honored. Places that have engaged in StoryBridge for consecutive years show higher levels of conflict resolution ability, self-confidence, and community engagement, all skills that absolutely lead to our resilience. I love creating these types of gatherings, and it's really neat that in any town, anywhere, we can gather and tell our stories, and we can strengthen our connections and strengthen the resilience of our communities by doing so. We'll be doing more Story Bridges on Maui soon. And if you'd like to bring Story Bridge to your organization or community, please get in touch. Story Bridge may even be happening now in a community near you. Learn more at www.storybridge.space. What's a meaningful moment that happened around food in your life? We would love to hear your story. Please write your story, record it however you like, and send it to us. Email rhapsody at storyconnective.org. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us get the word out and attract more listeners. And please make a donation. Story Connective is supported by listeners like you. Story Connective's 501c3 mission and vision of bringing inspiring stories of resilience and possibility to the world is our passion and we run on donations. And we really appreciate your support. You can make a one-time donation at rally.org slash storyconnective or become a patron, meaning you give us a donation each time we create a piece of content. Learn more at patreon.com slash storyconnective or by using a Be a Patron button on the Podbean podcast app. Special thanks to Maui Academy of Performing Arts and Ma Lama Lama Maui for helping with this story bridge gathering in Wailuku. We would like to thank our tellers, Wendy, Eva, Sally, and Jane. Special thanks as well to Richard Gear, the founder of the StoryBridge Method, Ching Hong Wei, StoryBridge's executive director, and the StoryBridge team for all your community and support. The StoryBridge gathering was facilitated by me, Rebecca Rhapsody, from the Story Connective and StoryBridge Spaces. 
Audio recording by Loxley Clovis at storyconnected.org. Audio production by Loxley Clovis. The intro song is Which That Is This by Dr. Turtle, released under the Creative Commons Attribution License. The outro song is by Rebecca Rhapsody. We are grateful to our nonprofit fiscal sponsor, ELSA, at ELLSSA.org. The purpose of this audio interview is for nonprofit education news and commentary. This podcast is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike license. Thank you for listening to The Story Connective.